This is how we overcome the movement of the kingdom. Reaching to the world with arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. We are continuing our series about weird Bible stories. You know, those those sections of the Bible where you just read it and you go, what on earth did I just read and why? <laughs> so we're not really solving any of these questions. We're just kind of lifting them up and scratching our brains and trying to figure out if if there are any lessons to learn and what they could possibly be. Uh, so we've already talked about uh, Jacob wrestling with a man or possibly God and getting a new name. We've talked about the witch of Endor. And we've talked about that time that Jesus just should have eaten that snicker bar, but instead he cursed a fig tree. So today we're going to continue in the New Testament, but where are we going today, Steve? Um, today, we're going to take a look at three short and related stories involving jailbreaks or potential jailbreaks that seem to have divine fingerprints on them that come from the book of Acts. Um, and when, when, when I say three three stories, we're not going to try to overload folks with like way, way, way too much, but there are enough commonalities between these stories and the interplay between them seems important enough that we wanted to uh, turn folks' attention to three spots for three stories. Um, for, for a lot of folks um, who probably already know that in the, in the book of Acts, you find the early community of Jesus um, not only reaching out uh, and sharing the good news of Jesus to new people, but often getting in trouble with new and different authorities at every turn. Um, and as the Christian community spreads out from the city of Jerusalem and then out to Judea and now to Gentile territory, they get in trouble with different authorities at every turn. So in the book of Acts in chapter five, um, Peter and some of the other early leaders have been speaking about Jesus. They've been healing people in Jesus' name and uh, have been warned politely, please don't talk about Jesus anymore and please don't preach in his name. And at one point in Acts 5, in a pretty uh, succinct news story, it's the high priest that uh, gets upset with Peter and others. It, uh, in 517 and following, the high priest took action, all who were with uh, him, uh, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And then during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and tell the people this whole message about this life. And they go back the very next day and do exactly the same thing that got them in trouble again. Then skip about seven chapters to Acts 12, where again, it's Simon Peter who gets in trouble, gets arrested. He's in prison. And at night, an angel show, uh, shows up, breaks his chains. He's thinking he's having a dream. And um, as the angel keeps like, hey, come on, buddy, and wakes him up, walking him out of the prison. At some point, Peter realizes this isn't a dream. He's actually getting broken out of prison another time by an angel. And he goes to a house where... Um, it's like a safe house for the early Christian underground um, and goes and visits a house called the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, who might just be the Mark that we associate with the gospel, according to Mark. And there's a woman who's keeping the, the gate, who's standing at the door. Again, remembering this is like a safe house. You got to make sure that, you know, the, the authorities don't come and arrest everybody. Her name is Rhoda and she's watching the gate. And when Peter says, hey, I'm here, 
she can't believe that it's Peter because she knows that Peter's in jail. So she goes and tells everybody inside, hey, hey, it's Peter. And they're like, you're crazy. It can't be Peter. It's a ghost or it's Peter's angel or something like that. And they go back out and what do you know, it really is Peter. And he comes in and says that an angel broke him out of jail. And then most complicating of all this is a scene in Acts chapter 16, where it's no longer Simon Peter who's in trouble, but um, uh, another uh, Christian leader, an emerging Christian leader who many of us know as St. Paul, who had uh, been given also the name Saul, who had been an opponent of the early church. He becomes a follower of Jesus, pairs up in this scene with a guy named Silas, and they uh, get into such trouble in the city of Philippi, they get arrested, and the authorities uh, have them beaten with reeds and flogged, uh, and then thrown in jail. And in jail, while they are singing hymns and praise to God, an earthquake comes, breaks open all the doors, busts their chains and their fetters, and the jailer comes in, who is responsible for all these prisoners, and uh, sees the door wide open and assumes all the prisoners have escaped, and he's about to kill himself because he knows that something worse is waiting in store for him if he doesn't. And Paul and Silas shout out and say, hey, we're still here. Don't kill yourself. Um, And then they, in fact, share the good news of Jesus with him. He washes their wounds and invites them to his house, and he and his whole family become followers of Jesus and are baptized that very night. So three different jailbreak scenes and some very different conclusions to them. So the question, we have to beg the question from these stories, if, an, if you go to jail for some reason and an angel breaks you out, do you leave? <laughs> I, I, I think... Only if the angel physically shows itself to you. Otherwise, assume that the earthquake might not be an angel or the work of an angel and maybe just stay and sing hymns. I think even though we're we're jokingly getting at it, this raises one of the really difficult issues with what do we do with the book of Acts? Is it meant to be um, simply a bunch of stories that happen, but don't necessarily take, you know, any guidance from these? Is it supposed to be, you should copy the things that happened in this story, or is it somewhere in between on that continuum, where some of these things are an example for how the later followers of Jesus are supposed to live, and some of them are just, hey, here's what happened. I'm not telling you what you're supposed to do. And honestly, I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table. I think there's there's um, a ditch on either side of the road, to borrow that imagery of, of C.S. Lewis's, that if we treat this only as here are stories, but you are not supposed to do anything in any way that looks like these stories, we're going to end up with um, completely distorting what the Christian faith is to be in our own image rather than having any continuity with the early community of Jesus. And on the other hand, if we look for some rule in which all Christians are supposed to do X or Y or Z, the book of Acts itself is going to upset us because it doesn't give us a consistent, this always happened in every circumstance. I think it's, it's a lot more like, here's our roots and look at what the Holy Spirit did among these people. What kinds of things might the Holy Spirit do among you Instead of like a straight line, it's more like the book of Acts gives us a trajectory, Um, like it's an arc and there's a curve to it. And you can see if you you know at the end of the story, the arc keeps going, it's going to keep pushing out in new directions. um, And somehow it will be consistent with what came before, but it's not just a, a cookie cutter or a recipe do exactly what happened before. 
always kind of took the book of Acts to be be that history book of what the early church did. And similar to when I'm on Facebook and I see what my clergy colleagues are doing in their churches, uh-huh. sometimes it's, you know, it's very like, yes, I agree. I think that's super cool what you're doing and I want to do it too, or I want to try it too. And then other times it's very much, oh, that's cool. I'm glad that's working in your context, but I don't think that that would work here in this place where I am with these people. Um, So, you know, it's a little bit of a grain of salt because these, these are the early church fathers and mothers and what they're doing is so cool. And it was so necessary to, to build the groundwork of what the Christian church is today, but our context is very, very different now. And they were also just people like us trying their best, trying to follow what they thought God wanted them to do and to be. Um, But that's not necessarily who God wants us to do or to be. Right, right, right. And I I think that helpfully points out like um, a possible danger about the mentality of, I I have to put myself in the mind of what would the early church have done um, to me, that feels like if you go to an art museum and you're really moved by all the Rembrandts, you go, okay, now I have to make exact copies of what Rembrandt did. No, like you can be inspired by an artist and like find your own style that somehow does, um, you know, does justice to what Rembrandt did without just trying to copy what Rembrandt did. Um, and I, I think maybe in a similar way, um, we get into danger if we think the job of the 21st century church is to... Um, you know, uh, uh, get get the genie back into the bottle, or or to unring the bell of well, let's go back to the first century. Well, like you know, the the, the early church had to deal with things that blessedly now are not issues quite in the same way, and we don't have to fight some of those battles. Like we don't every year have to say, are we going to let Gentiles in again this year? No, like okay, we can build on that. We don't have to you know refight that battle. Um, we don't have to have public circumcisions like happened in the Book of Acts um, to prove our points about things. Um, hopefully, none of us is preaching in ways that make people fall out of windows when they fall asleep. Um, so, like, I, there there are ways that those stories are helpful. As I think, I think the way you said it, Sarah, was, was such a great image of seeing what other people are doing and letting it inspire or be a springboard. But also then to ask, what about what's going on here would be helpful in my context, and what what is is just not not helpful or, or even um, not meant to be duplicated. All that said, because these particular stories are about jailbreaks, there are a couple of things that seem, I guess, like particular to, to explore. Like uh, if, if, if we're like, if, if you're looking at some other person's Facebook post about, Hey, we had this cool church dinner or we did this service project that seems all good. And it's, it's just a question of would it work in my context or not? But here you've got early leaders in the Christian community getting in trouble and thrown in jail. And the question then to me becomes, um, what are the things that are worth us getting in trouble for and where are the places we're not supposed to be getting in trouble? I mean, like, there are certainly places in the New Testament where you get voices saying things like, live a quiet life, 
Don't make a big fuss. Don't be a big jerk to your neighbors. And please try not to get yourselves in the headlines. And that makes sense sometimes. And then you also get places where the early church is like, we have to get into trouble because we're going to obey God rather than human authorities. And uh, we have to uh, declare the name of Jesus. And we have to uh, speak up for people who are being hurt or harassed. And they, they do that even knowing they're going to get in trouble. How, when you hear these stories, what, what does it say to you about how we approach, when, when are we supposed to get into good trouble, to borrow a phrase from John Lewis, um, and where are there places where we're, no, this is just, this is just agitating in ways that aren't helpful. How, how, do, how do these stories help us discern those kind of questions? When, when I was in seminary, a similar question, I think, was posed to me in one of my history classes which was, you know, we were studying the martyrs. And if we were living in the early church and we were arrested for being Christians and brought before the authorities and asked, are you a Christian? How would you answer, Mm -hmm. right? Knowing that if you say, yes, I am a Christian, you would be executed maybe on the spot. If you were to answer, no, I'm not a Christian, you would get released and you would get to live another day, but you would have denied God. How would you answer? And at the time in seminary, you know, I was, you know, just dating my husband. I wasn't, so I wasn't married. I didn't have children. Um, You know, at the time I was like, well, of course I would say I'm a Christian. Like I wouldn't deny God. Um, and now it's seven years later and that question, that hypothetical situation that I'm probably never going to face makes me pause because last summer it wasn't so much, would you deny Christianity, but like the hypothetical question of what would you do for your faith kind of became a reality during the Black Lives Matter marches during COVID. Sure. And there were the counter protests and like some of those Black Lives Matter marches turned very deadly. Mm-hmm. And so it was what for your faith, would you go out and say that Black Lives Matter publicly as a religious leader, knowing that it might have backlash for your career because your congregation might not agree? Would you um, possibly face somebody pointing a gun in your face and you're also potentially exposing yourself to being exposed to COVID? Yeah. And at that time, you know, I have two small children and it's, it suddenly became, no, I don't think (laughs) I can go to those marches right now because I have these responsibilities to these small children. I can't bring home COVID to them because they're so small. Would they be able to fight it off? I can't go and have somebody stick a gun in my face and possibly shoot me because then who's going to take care of these two little kids? And it it made me reevaluate that hypothetical question of, if I were arrested in the first century for Christianity, how would I answer? Yeah. 
Yeah. And maybe it's, it's worth exploring, too, the differences between Peter and Paul as well. I don't want to, to do too much speculating or fan fiction, but the Gospels give us a story of Peter having a mother-in-law, which suggests that Peter's got a wife. Um, we don't know stories about whether Peter has kids or not, but it is interesting that, like, Peter, who we have at least evidence, has at least a wife and maybe a family. The angel springs him. Um but Paul, not only to the best of our knowledge, isn't married, but in a lot of Paul's letters has this kind of like ambiguous or ambivalent at best uh, feeling about marriage where he'll say things like, you know, it's best if you're just like me, don't have any attachments like that. And Paul seems to be like almost speaking to your, your point exactly, Sarah, of like, look, if you end up with families, you're going to have responsibilities to them. And it's going to be harder to faithfully go proclaim the gospel or put your life on the line. And Paul seems to be one who finds his center of being in. I have, I don't have those other obligations so I can be completely on fire for Jesus and I can die and I can stay in the, uh, uh, you know, the, the jail cell and I'll risk my life. That's the thing I need to do. Part of that also might be Paul's still working through his own issues of he had persecuted the church for so long. Maybe he realizes I, I, I owe it or I, it, it's incumbent upon me to, to uh, show that I'm not going to bail out or, or uh, only st- you know, stand up for my faith when it's easy. So Paul may have other issues he's got to deal with. But I, I think this is an important piece is um, nobody, I think, in the, in the early church read these stories and said, Okay, the goal is we should try and get ourselves killed or we should try and get ourselves tortured or we should try and have our families, you know, grieve our deaths. Um, But more that there is this we need to be willing sometimes to get into good trouble and trust that God then we're going to be in God's hands. But that's a different position than actively to try and get ourselves killed. It reminds me of the story they tell about Origen, the early church father, um, and, and I'm going to slightly mess it up, so correct me if I'm misremembering it, but like he was so on fire with that sort of martyrdom, missionary kind of zeal of, I'm going to go out there and get myself killed because I ran up the Christians and his family like hid his clothes from him so he didn't run out of the house naked because somehow that would be too embarrassing. Um, but like the, the, the corrective of the wider community was, okay, we have to be willing to lay down our lives, yes. Sometimes will we get into holy trouble? Yes. But our job is not actively to um, provoke, uh, I, I, or, I, or is it? I mean, like, there, there are times where the action you know you're taking is going to be deliberately provocative. And, um, like, th- that, that story from Acts 5, to me, seems like one of those times where the, the response from the angel is, okay, you just got arrested for speaking about Jesus. Now go out and speak about Jesus some more and get in trouble all over again. And that seems to be part of the story. On the other hand, there are times when it's, you're safe. We don't have to get into that kind of trouble again. You know, let, let's let's move on to the next place and the next time. There's, there's for that matter, uh, the story about where Paul is being threatened and he escapes through the city wall in a basket being lowered down by a rope. So it's, even Paul doesn't have a universal policy of throw me in jail every time that it's possible. You got to there's somehow some kind of wisdom you've got to discern about what's the right kind of good trouble and when is it this isn't the right time for this kind of trouble. That might be a piece of maybe what we're what we're uh, sketching out here in our conversation that somehow we've got to figure out there are times when it's right and there's times when it, it's it's just not the right thing. It's it's not worth the the good that comes out of the good trouble. And I I find it interesting that like. 
for both instances with Peter and with Paul, you know, yes, Paul stays in after the earthquake and the doors are opened to him. Neither one of these men try to escape by their own power. Mm-hmm. But that way, you know, like Peter, especially in the second one, is kind of like has to be sh- kind of shoved out the door by the angel because he's, he, you know, he thinks that he's dreaming. Um, so they recognize that, yes, they, they're putting their life on the line by doing this, by, you know, they could be put into jail or anything, but they take the punishment as just a sign of that what they are doing is right. Right, right. I think that's an important, and it's probably important too to recognize there may be a difference between that these are situations, not a mob violence, uh, but of like the authorities where there is the time for them to sit and think about their response. Like in a mob situation where it's, you got to get out with for your life. Like there are certainly times in, even in the book of Acts where the people you know quickly escape and they survive or whatever. Um, and they're, and sometimes the authorities arresting them is what spares their lives because the mob's going to kill them. And when they get arrested, it's the, the, the soldiers uh, are both there to take them into custody, but also that's what keeps the mob from lynching them in that moment. Um, and then later they can deal with what they're going to deal with. So it, I guess to me, it seems like the, the book of Acts doesn't draw uh, a real simple rule of every time you could get in trouble, you should. And on the other hand, it's not every time you could get in trouble, you should avoid it because uh, what if it makes your life inconvenient later? But it, it forces us into the harder work of every situation by situation. What am I called to do here? I, I can't help but think as, as we um, wrestle with not only what happened in the first century, and then Sarah, it was so helpful to hear your reflection on in the last year or so in very real concrete situations in front of you. I can't help but think about um, what it was like in the 1930s and 40s uh, in the various movements that are at the confessing church that, that, that were rebelling against Nazi Germany, because we have some of those writers impressions about how they made their decisions. And I, I think in particular about Bonhoeffer, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer as one who lived in Germany, had come to America at one point, gone back to Germany, and then was offered a teaching post back in the States, had accepted it, and then pretty quickly realizes he needed to go back into trouble, back into Germany, um, and writes in a letter to Reinhold Niebuhr, I have to go back, um, not not like with a martyr complex of I have to die, but more like at some point, the war is going to be over. And if I'm going to get to be a part of rebuilding, I have to go through this time with my people. Um, and of course, that's when he gets caught up in the plot to assassinate Hitler and gets arrested and dies in, in a concentration camp there. Um, but there, there's, there's very much that very human, I've got human connections. I don't want to cause suffering for the people I love. And yet also there are these tipping point moments. And to me, it's helpful to read those stories of people who are not that far removed from us in history about how they decided, here's the, here's the sacrifice I'm willing to make, not just for me, but to know this is also going to hurt or cost my family. I'm willing to pay that price even for my family on this, but not on this other thing. Or here's the place where I have to stand up. Here's my, here I stand, I can do no other moments. Um, what sometimes uh, the church calls those status confessionis movements. Like what, what are the moment where th- the church stands or falls on whether we, you know, support Hitler or don't support Hitler, that kind of thing. Um, and it's probably worth noting too, that even in those moments that we would hope there is crystal clarity, I would hope it's clear, don't support Hitler. He's always bad. Nazis are always bad. 
that an awful lot of the church at that time was left with, nah, we can accommodate. Like, you know, let's not, let's not, you know, lose our businesses over this. Like, you know, let's not get thrown in jail over this. Um, and it wasn't clear to everybody that, that to me is haunting. Cause like, I would hope that in some future time that, that we're called upon to say, here's, here, here's the line. I'm willing to go to jail or I'm willing to, you know, lose my life for it that everybody around would be like, yep, we all come to the same conclusion. And the fact that when it was Nazism, it wasn't that clear for a lot of folks. It, it, it makes it hard for me to say, how am I going to know? How are we going to know when, when it's the moment for us to stay in jail um, and say to the, the, the Philippian jailer, we're still here. Um, and, or for that matter, how are we going to know when it's time to listen to the angel that says, go get right back into the same kind of trouble all over again? How, how, do, you, how do you approach these questions, Erica? Like, do you find yourself thinking these kind of thought experiments too? So I do. And um, I would say like Sarah said, you know, with her thought experiment in seminary, I still kind of have that same answer because like Sarah, you when you were in seminary, you were single. I mean, you were dating your husband, but you were single for the most part. And so am I. And so I, you know, I have even shared with like my safety team at my church if somebody should ever come in and threaten the church. And if it meant my life over one of theirs, yeah that I would give my life because I know where I'm going. I hope I know where all of them are going too. But, um, you know, would that make my parents sad? Would make my best friend sad? Yes, but I don't have a husband. I don't have children at home waiting for me. And I, I would hope, um, and, and I think back to the young girl from Columbine who, you know, when one of the, the shooters asked her, do you believe in God? And she said, yes. And then they shot her. Like, if I was ever placed in that moment, that God would give me the words to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One way or the other. You know, yeah. I, I, I hope to, and I would like to think that I would not deny him, but Peter, <laughs> you know, yeah. so I, I'm not going to claim to be anyone, anything like Peter. So I'm just going to hope in that moment that whatever the answer needs to be, whether it's to say yes and stand up and defend God or just say no. So I can go on and do things past that moment. God will give me the the words to say and the courage to say them in that moment. And I won't just cower and say no, just to save my life because I'm a wimp, but perhaps maybe I'll say no, because there's something else I can do because of that. It's interesting to me too, how in, these stories, nobody takes that route of saying, no, they're not a Christian. It's just a question of whether they break out or not. Um, Mm -hmm. And you also wonder if at some point, eventually, if Paul knows he's going to get out, if he's like, oh, earthquake, God's got our back. All right, let's play this cool and see where it goes. But we know God's going to get us out. Um, And that at the same time, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is also the one who gives us the gospel of Luke, where, like in all the gospels, Peter bails out on Jesus and denies knowing him. Now, certainly you could say there's some personal growth, maybe, between uh, Holy Week when he denies knowing Jesus and when he realizes he got to step up. But that recognition, this is the same person, and that, okay, he blew it in one moment, that now there's other opportunities where he's going to keep getting in trouble knowing I'm, I'm, I don't want to make those same mistakes all over again, but it, that, that's another factor in all of this, that this is Peter who's got his own backstory of bailing out when things got difficult too. I, I guess I wonder the additional challenge that um, I think we have to, to wrestle with in our day and in our time um, where I, and I, I have to be grateful that we don't live in 
say a, a place where um, there is overt government, um, you know, they're not rounding us up and feeding us to lions like in the worst of the Roman Empire, if you just name the name of Jesus. Um, but that there are times where our faith might call us to take a particular stand. And that's where things get more slippery too. Like it's hard to decide is, okay, this seems to be in line with my faith. I need to speak up about X or Y or Z. Is this one of those places where I need to be willing to go to jail or get in trouble or lose my job or you know, whatever over? And where are the places where it's tangential, you know, where it's, it's not about my faith uh, exactly or where, and, and that's, that's hard. I, I honestly feel like those kind of circumstances are going to be more, more often than not, the kind of questions we have to do the wrestling with, that it's going to be less likely centurions at the door saying, either you confess Jesus or we, we know, uh, and we feed you to a lion or you're off the hook. And it's going to be more of those, those moments of my faith in Jesus leads me to speak up for this person or to say, no, this thing is not acceptable, um, or, you know, whatever. Um, and at those points, where do we, where do we, put ourselves on the line for those kind of causes or needs or for other people. We, my, my wife and I have been watching um, the TV show uh, Man in the High Castle recently. It, it's been out for a few years, so we're a little bit late for the party. Um, and I don't want to spoil too, too much or get too, too much in a very convoluted plot. But there's an episode that sticks in my head where um, uh, you get to see, um, it's, it's set in the 1960s in this particular scene in our world, not a parallel world, in our world. And there's um, a, a, a kid, a teenager and his dad. He doesn't know it's a parallel universe version of his dad, but it's a kid and his dad. And they're both white and they're watching this black couple come in, sit at the counter and ask to be served. And of course they are not getting served. Uh, the, the owner of the restaurant, you know, refused to serve him, calls the police and uh, you see them getting, you know, let out and arrested and being harassed and all that. And the 16-year-old kid watching this happen looks at his dad with like this just crestfallen disappointment of like, I can't believe you didn't do anything, dad. I can't believe you didn't speak up. And the dad um, sort of argues back, well, look, you know, it's, it's not going to do anything. There's no point in standing up for principles. There's a whole bunch of other stuff going on for that character's psyche at the moment. But that sense of like, sometimes the thing you're called to do isn't just to say, I believe in God. But sometimes the thing you're called to do is because you believe in God to say, these people should be served or these people should be treated like human beings or you can't do that to somebody. And that's just as much a piece of getting into good trouble for your faith as um, uh, saying Jesus is Lord. Um, and I guess I wonder, like, how, how do we deal with those kind of questions, which are going to be a lot muddier than um, will, you, will you confess the words Jesus is Lord or not? In, in a sense, at least that's got the clarity. Um, but where is the line for, okay, in the restaurant in 1960s segregated restaurant situation, do you stand up for somebody or risk arrest for something like that? That, that seems muddier and harder, but maybe closer to the kind of things we're going to have to live with in our own day. And I think for the longest time, those were the kinds of questions posed to us in history classes of like, what would you do in this situation? Right. And we're suddenly in our modern times, seeing those hypothetical questions become real. Yeah. Right? Like, um, especially over the past year with all of the um, Black Lives Matter movement, the there's suddenly a lot more transphobia and homophobia that's like out there being verbalized, being acted upon in ways that 
maybe wasn't in the forefront of our consciousness previously. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are actual Nazis in right. our country and they're pretty proud and they're pretty like open and out about it in ways that I couldn't imagine 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's certainly worth dwelling on, are you in a place in your life right now where you can verbally shout from the hilltops where you are because of your faith right. that, you know, and where you are as in like, yes, I believe that you, no matter who you are, you are loved by God. Um, and I, and I think that that does boil down to context, like where I am right now, I am in a much healthier congregation that I think would support me shouting such things <laughs> in ways that my previous congregation probably would not have. So I have job security in the way, in a way that I did not last year. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as yes, I do still have small children, so I might not shout quite so loudly if I think that there's somebody wielding a gun nearby, but you know, I'm also very much aware that my children are watching what I do. Right. And I don't want them to look back in 20 years and go, oh yes, my mother didn't speak up when it was important. Right, right, right. And and I, I guess that that's is that tension because like as someone with with two kids in my family as well, there's both the I I don't want to unnecessarily physically harm their lives by being dead or you know unemployed or whatever. Um, and on the other hand, it seems like the the heart of the the parents' responsibility is also to shape human you know, children into being decent human beings. That I want them to be the kind of people who know the value of standing up for their convictions, even when it's not popular or whatever. And how do you embody that? And knowing there's going to be times when I screw up and there's going to be times looking back when they go, yeah, dad really should have spoke up more on this or man, he really made a big deal out of this when it was not something he needed to you know, make a fuss over. And maybe uh, the, the humbling realization that my children are going to learn their own lessons. And for that matter, my watching congregations are going to learn their own lessons sometimes through what I do right and sometimes through when I fail and they'll go yeah this one didn't need to be a big fuss or this one he should have spoken up more on surprise he didn't um and in some ways they will learn and and grow from my failures as much as they will learn from my successes as well that that's a uh, a hard pill to swallow but it seems like I have to all this conversation brings to mind um a line that sticks in my mind of Walter Winks who talks about the martyrs and he says um to be a, a, a martyr, or martyrs aren't helpless victims um, oppressed by evil. They are hunters that stalk evil out into the open by offering their bodies as bait. And I love that notion that the, the martyrs of the early church didn't see themselves as helpless victims, but they saw themselves as making conscious choices. I know I will get into trouble for this. That is part of my witness. I will do this anyway. Um, that 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 sticks with me and that 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 to me says something akin to like dr king's position you know in the letter to the birmingham jail where this is i knew what i knew this is going to happen it's not he's not he's not writing a letter saying woe is me why was i arrested for this you know thing that i did he knew this was going to lead to getting arrested and yet it was uh it was one of those places where i this is a way of exposing the rottenness and hoping to to draw attention so the world will see um 
but knowing how you do that and when you do that to spend your chips wisely so that you don't end up wasting trouble that uh, could have been spent on something else maybe. So we don't have a, a single answer from the Bible on when you should or should not get busted out of prison. Um, but maybe in all these, we discover that both Peter and Paul trust that they're in the hands of God and care about the people they're supposed to care about, but also are willing to trust that um, if it comes to it, they're willing to lay down their lives. And somewhere in that tension, we're going to have to find ourselves in our own way, too. More conversation next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you. Bye. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,